Welcome back to Divorced and Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers helping you navigate the six Divorced and Done steps to move through your divorce quickly and efficiently without bankrupting yourself emotionally or financially. And everything we talk about in this podcast is for your information, but it is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Darren Schmidt, we're recording this on a Tuesday night. How you doing? Rob, I am so incredible, I cannot put it into words. No words in the English language or any language can describe how unbelievably fantastic I feel. You feel feldspar. Oh, if that's what it is, that's what it is, but I'm feeling it, baby. Feldspar. I actually, I think that's an alloy uh, that's a combination of several different metals. You said no words, and why the word Feldspar mm. popped immediately into my mind. F e l d s p a r. Uh, I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, we are here with our favorite listeners that want to move through their divorces, as I said, quickly and efficiently. And you and I have a whole bunch <clears throat> of questions in the queue. But if folks want to send us questions, how can they do that? You can do it two ways. Well, you can do it three ways. Uh, first is by email, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. We don't reveal your identity when we read out the question, and we love hearing from you that way. The second way is voice message, speakpipe.com slash divorced and done, A-N-D, done. Uh, that allows you to leave a 90-second voicemail message. Again, you don't have to state your name, just whatever you want to ask us. We'll play it on the podcast we will probably give the voice message priority over emails because we love hearing from you. And it's a fun thing, the speak pipe machine. Third way is you could just write a message into a bottle and throw it into your favorite uh, body of water and maybe it'll get to us. I doubt it. Yeah, um, you're in inland BC. I'm in Calgary. We're both <laughs> landlocked. That's a great idea. You never know. I mean, if you don't try it, it may not happen. But if a bottle washed up on the shore of the Bassett Creek in Lumbee saying to Rob and Darren, here's my question. I'd probably take it to the podcast and read it. You, you do walk your dog down there. We have like a, uh, probably a dozen, half dozen little creeks yeah, that little run through our area. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Which is why we're always foggy in the winter. We've been having nothing but gray weather over the last couple of weeks. So it's tough. I know I know I missed that from Alberta. That, warm sunshine that will come out in the middle of winter and make you feel great despite it being minus 30. But I have uh, one thing, this episode will come out before yeah, the sure. weekend. Uh, if anyone is in the interior of BC and you want to come see the Lumbee Outhouse races, I'm organizing it for the second year in a row. We mentioned it last year. Um, it's in Lumbee on Sunday, January 22nd. And it is teams of three pushing three-sided outhouses in support of our local Monashi Trail Society for trail initiatives in the Lumbee area, non-motorized trail systems. So please, if you have an opportunity, come out, check it out, say hi, I'll be down there. I'm going to jump on that, Darren, because you have done amazing work building this community initiative, uh, you and the other folks involved with the Monashi Trail Society, because what began last year as a narrow local event has expanded almost into, I, I think, what, uh, no spoilers, what is becoming a larger community, almost Winterfest, because there are going to be food trucks and other vendors there, am I correct? 
So this year, the Chamber of Commerce for Lumbee is going to be down there serving popcorn and hot chocolate to keep everyone warm and fed. And you can donate to them if you want to grab a bite or have a hot chocolate. And we have at least double the amount of teams we had last year. And so there'll be lots of round robin races. It's a family friendly event. People are going to dress up in costumes and different themes for their outhouses. And it's just in the middle of January, it's become a, I don't want to say a beacon of hope. That's an overstatement, but it's kind of a fun thing people can look forward to in an otherwise kind of dark and dreary time of the year. It's a sunny spot in the local fog. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. So uh, check it out. We appreciate you if you can. Anyway, to that end, uh, and without further ado, let's pop into our questions because we hopefully can provide a a sunny spot in your foggy divorce. All right, let's go to our first question by voicemail. Listener says, hello. Well, hello. It's a follow-up question from a prior one the listener sent previously, which I believe we answered on a past episode at some point. Listener says, uh, before my ex and I separated, I did the majority of the parenting and my ex did very little. This was the reason for the breakdown in our relationship. I was the major breadwinner and also did all of the home duties. He was neglectful and distant with the kids as a result. And our relationship deteriorated, or their relationship, his, the ex's relationship with the kids deteriorated, and they didn't want to see him without a fight. When we separated, he requested 50-50 parenting time, but the history of care did not reflect this, and I fought hard with parenting coaches for a 70-30, split in my favor. I offered him access, but he only wants 50-50, which I presume he wants only to reduce his child support or for an increase in child support, I guess. Uh, on his end, though better than a year ago, the kids still don't want to go to his house. And I have a list of issues that are problematic with his parenting. He isolates kids. He won't let them call me when he's in his care. He can be erratic and he doesn't communicate well. Uh, but there's no real major deal breakers like abuse or alcoholism that I'm aware of. I've had them for a year in this schedule and now he is pushing it forward. He's never paid child support and was basically forced to do so last month in our settlement conference. We are preparing for a case conference, and I'm wondering what are my chances of maintaining the current schedule long term? I hear courts always go 50-50, but based on history of care, status quo and communication issues, what are my odds? For reference, we were common law, not married, and live in Manitoba, and our two kids are nine and seven. Okay, parenting time question. There is some non-equal split of parenting time. The other party wants it, but there's some concerns, none of which are truly urgent and pressing, i.e. abuse uh, or substance abuse, things like that. Rob, uh, what are your thoughts here? This listener uh, is doing a great job, and she knows she is squarely step two because parenting has not been resolved. She's touched a little bit on child support, Um, but as we know, until your parenting is resolved, we're not going to talk about child support because that's step three and that's perhaps a future problem for her case conference. It's all fine and well, the dad may think he wants 50, 50, but as she's explained, uh, through numerous parenting coaches, excuse me, 
She's in a 70-30 split in her favor. Uh, and presumably that's continued for a year. So you're now in a status quo uh, where dad could have gone to court at any point in time over this last year or taken initiatives perhaps to push more parenting time for himself, but he didn't. And even though you suggest you can't point to any, as she calls the major deal breakers like abuse or alcoholism, you're going to go into that case conference and have a broad conversation about what your parenting time has been like in the past and what you want it to be in the future. And the best factors for you, you're not denying him being a parent. You're obviously still encouraging that 30%. If he wants more parenting time, he needs to be able to demonstrate that he can communicate with you. I think that's number one. Generally, one of the preconditions for shared parenting is the parties can make it work. But even more than that, why does he want an increase? Somehow you wound up at 70-30, and it's all well and good that he said 50-50 when you split, but you're not there now, and that's not the reality for your children. And as everyone knows, the number one factor when we look at parenting is what's in the best interests of your children objectively, not what's in the best interests of parents in terms of parents' interests. So without more information from you, other than he wants shared parenting, he'll need to articulate why it's best for the children in spite of potentially whatever evidence you have and that he's isolating the children. If he's not letting them call you when they're in his care, that's concerning. Uh, and erratic behavior, you don't really elaborate on that. I would suggest to be a bit more objective on the notions of isolating your children and erratic uh, because there can be lots of different parenting styles. So you need to really focus on separating, is he a bad dad or is he just really bad at communicating with you? So going into that case conference, you'll need to be able to speak to his parenting abilities objectively apart from your relationship because just because he was a bad spouse to you doesn't mean he's necessarily a bad uh, parent to your children but on the other hand moving up to shared parenting why would we do this as you suggest other than for a reduction for him on his child support and the best factor you have going into that case conference to maintain your status quo is it's been going on for a year Darren Schmidt, what are your thoughts? What an amazing answer, folks. That was uh, that was great, Rob. Um, I don't have a whole lot to add other than uh, there's no magic to setting parenting schedules. Of course, we, best interests of the children, Rob, you've said that. Um, the best people... The, the people in the best position to make a decision about where kids live are the two parents. So when you ask, listener, about what are your chances of success, you're presuming that a third party will make that decision for you, and that third party would be a judge. So why do you want to go to a judge? Are you steadfast on the 70-30 split? Or is there some flexibility on both sides to say, Maybe it's not 50-50, maybe it's not 70-30, maybe it's something else, maybe it's something we haven't considered. Can you engage someone that's not a lawyer that can help you work through that, like a counselor, like a divorce coach, uh, or your lawyers themselves help both of you move through what options do you have? 
Because if you're saying, what are my chances of success maintaining a 50-50 parenting schedule, you have to factor in that you will not feel successful even if you maintain the 70-30 split, likely, if you go to a trial because your costs to run the trial and the emotional baggage and uh, all of it, the, all the emotional um, stuff that comes along with being in front of a judge, likely for multiple days to get a decision on that, no one wins. So you can't really put a statistic on it. Who can make decisions about where your kids should live? Hopefully you and your ex can. And there's probably more options in front of you than you first realize, other than the litigated settlement conferences, mandated settlement conferences through the litigation process that you already have. So can you meet with some other people? Are there others in your orbit professionally that can assist you to make that decision? Because asking a judge to do so is not optimal. So we hope you can work through that. And we very much thank you for the multiple questions you've now sent us to trust us to answer them. We really appreciate it. Thanks for an engaging and we wish you well. All right, let's go to our next question. The listener says, hi, hello, I'm going through a divorce. Well, you've come to the right place. The listener says it will be almost three years through this process in Surrey, BC. I'm dealing with three things. Number one, and the listener then poses the three questions. So perhaps we'll pause through each question. Sounds good and not run through all three and then answer them in sequence. We'll just go through them one by one. Okay, question one. My in-laws gave us $100,000 for a down payment of our house and renovations in 2013. Now they sent a letter in November, 2021 for repayment. There was no written agreement, no repayment throughout the years, they are now saying they told us to pay them back when the house was sold or when we finished payment. Neither of the two were discussed. They told us it was a gift. They are just trying to get money back for their son. Now I have to do a discovery in March for a lawyer that they obtained. Will they win? What a question. And Darren Schmidt, I'm going to jump right on this because... You have recently dealt with an issue very similar to this uh, at great length. So I'm going to turn it right over to you. So I will do my best to not make this technical because this isn't a technical podcast where we try and speak over the people listening to this podcast <clears throat> uh, through legalese. But when... Uh, adults give their children, provide their children, let's say, and not give, because that, that means gift. When they provide their children with money, there's a presumption at law that it is not a gift. There's a presumption that a what's called a resulting trust is created, meaning that the party that gets the money holds it in trust for the benefit of the other adult, the parents, that gave them the money. So there's a presumption that it's not a gift, to put it at its most basic. We start from that presumption, that it's not a gift. And then we look at what evidence do we have to move us either away from it's, no, 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 it is a gift, or actually this is a loan, right? Because it's, it's either a gift or it's a loan. It's one of two things. 
So your evidence is that there was no discussion about what this money was when it was provided. There was no um, agreement, even verbally, about what the nature of this was. It was just simply provided to you. You say they gave the $100,000 towards a down payment for your house and for renovations through 2013. And only in 2021, they asked for repayment. So I don't know whether the request for repayment came after your separation with your spouse or not, um, but I don't know that that's necessarily germane or relevant to answering this question. What I do know is that the uh, in-laws, your ex's parents stand in a strong position from the presumption of resulting trust to say that the money was a loan. You must now provide evidence that the money was intended as a gift. And that evidence might be simply what you say they told you or didn't tell you, but there might be other indicia that would lead one to think it's a gift. Is there anything else in writing? Emails between uh, your ex and them or both of you and them? Was anything else done through the years to evidence that they never wanted the money back and that they were happy to simply have the money go to you and your ex? Only you know the answers to those things. It's an incredibly difficult case. And I'll turn it over to Rob because you and I have talked about we're going to see a lot more of these cases. And I think we're going to need to see a tightening up of the law around this specific issue of uh, parent, adult parents giving their adult child and their spouse some money, and there's no real specifications around what that really means. And then there's a separation, and maybe the, um, the the providers of the money, the adult parents, have a um, revisionist history perspective on what the intended nature of that money was, and litigation ensues. It's really difficult. So, what are your thoughts? Everything you've just said is exactly spot on because you and I, Darren, have had this conversation several times now, I would say over probably more than more than a year, maybe even coming up on two years, talking about this exact issue. We are seeing this exact issue in more and more of our files. The notion, well, you and I are both millennials. And I don't want to speak anecdotally, but anybody reading the news or topical YouTube or anything, the general notion that we as millennials, people that are 45 and younger, have potentially less money than our parents did. Younger people need help buying houses, especially with the phenomenal, and I say that both in a negative and a positive sense, phenomenal real estate market, particularly in Canada. There are now more than two people involved in a lot of real estate transactions. And the problem we're seeing is whether parents are on title formally or informally loaning money to their children. And without, unfortunately, narrowly addressing this question for our listener, Darren is exactly right. This is a very hard issue, and we cannot say for you simply, as you ask us, will my in-laws win? I don't know. And it's not easy. There are gaps in the law 
in this issue. So even though we can't answer this for this listener, I want to say very clearly to anyone else listening to this, even though you may be going through a divorce or a separation now, you may know other people. You may have friends that are in this exact position where they're saying, his parents or my parents, they're going to loan us money. They're going to give us money. That's fine, and I'm not saying that's bad. But if you know of someone that's in the position of contemplating doing this, everyone, parents included, should spend the less than potentially $1,000 to meet with a real estate lawyer, to potentially even draft something or structure something so that everybody is abundantly clear and on the very literal same page about is what's what's happening with that down payment or money that's used to purchase a home because unfortunately having this fight and now doing this, you're no longer just having a battle with your ex. Your in-laws have entered the fray. And Darren, as you said, memories get hazy. Revisionist history abounds. Everyone has a different story. So now you're no longer moving straight through our divorced and done steps. The divorced and done steps are still there, but your in-laws are now in the process with potentially a different story than what happened some years ago. So long story short, Darren, I I endorse everything you said. This is a highly technical issue. uh, And really, I would leave this squarely, unfortunately, with this listener and her lawyer uh, from the view of resulting trust and piecing together um, the best scenario to the best recollections of the listener of what happened. And I hope your in-laws are a little bit resolution oriented and that you can resolve that one issue uh, with them amicably and don't have to face additional litigation around that $100,000. Okay, let's go to the second question in this email. The listener says, my ex wants the house but doesn't want to pay me spousal support. I worked part-time so his career could go high. Now he makes over $230,000 a year and I make $50,000 a year. His lawyer wants to impute me at an income level uh, at $90,000 a year to reduce spousal support. We have three children aged 8, 10, and 11. They are in high-level activities including soccer and hockey and I can't work full-time because of this. Can the court impute income to me such that it shows that I make more money? I also have to do a discovery on this issue with my ex and his lawyer in February. Okay, Rob, an income question and imputation of income question with incomplete facts, but what do you think? We've talked about income imputation recently, uh, particularly in Alberta, even though we know the listeners in BC, because I think all provinces now in Canada have the ability to allow judges to impute income to individuals in situations where it makes sense. And for the sake of being necessarily brief, uh, those income imputation tests are a reasonableness test that looks at your work history, uh, what you do now, and basically your current situation to say, is it fair 
to impute income to you. And in your situation, you have three young children, 8, 10, and 11, and they're quite busy in sports. And as you suggest, you can't work full time. If much of your day is helping and parenting your children, and you are working as hard as you can, and you only make $50,000 a year, I'd suggest moving to impute you to $90,000 a year, where he's already earning two thirty may not be reasonable. Uh, you have discoveries in February. I'm sure lots of the questions you will get asked will be around what your day looks like, what you do. As you say, you can't work full time. That's probably what most of the questions to you will be targeted around. If you have a lot of spare time or could be working or doing something else, maybe imputation of income could occur in this situation, but from the bits and pieces that you've put there, suggesting you're a parent full-time and making $50,000, I think you're doing pretty well, and an imputation argument here might be reaching. What do you think, Darren? I think based on the income disparity that and the limited facts we know, it looks like this is a good candidate case, if you will, for uh, spousal support entitlement. Yes. Absolutely. And I didn't so the question is just how much. And so setting your income at a range between fifty dollars and $90,000 without actually running the calculations or using DivorceMate software to, to run the calculations, and I'm not trying to be crass, I don't imagine that the monthly amount of spousal support nor the duration would shift drastically even if you were imputed income at $90,000 a year. It's not like they're saying we That's want to impute... Point impute your income to $150,000 a year. It's not to say that you simply give up on that issue, but I think you would do well to ask your lawyer, can you run two separate calculations for me? One showing my income at $50,000 and one showing my income at $90,000. And you'll see on the calculation what the difference in the numbers are, and you can determine how much do I want to fight around this? Is this worth paying for a one-day discovery? Of course, the other side has the right to do the discovery anyway. But um, if you can find some middle ground there and hopefully resolve that issue without too much litigation around it, number one, that will cut the anxiety down. Number two, that just gets another thing out of the way so that you can focus on all the rest of the issues. But at its core, my gut says the spread in monthly support between your income at 50,000 versus 90,000 probably isn't drastic, but just have a look and make some decisions around that. Uh, last question in this email, last question for this episode. Uh, how can I keep my house? I can't afford to buy. Can the judge help me maintain the house as my ex now lives with his parents and they live only five minutes away from uh, the house that I live in, the house owned by her and her ex? Our children's school is also close by. His parents, the ex's parents, help him pick up and drop off the children to school. All right. On this question, the uh, listener lives in BC, so maybe I'll take a run at this. I think the sure. core of the question is, um, what can a court do either on an interim or final basis where the party living in the house likely can't afford to take over the mortgage? And as part of the inevitable result, at final trial or final determination of property division, they won't be able to obtain refinancing for certainly the amount the mortgage is now, or to increase that mortgage amount given the increase in interest rates just anecdotally. Uh, it's probably not possible for that party to continue to live in the house. 
factoring in, of course, their income as well as child support and in this case, spousal support payments. So I think more broadly, without saying, can a judge force me to give up the house or can the judge help me maintain the house? I think you have to ask yourself, is it inevitable? Even if you got you kept your income at 50000 you collected spousal support and you collected child support, is it feasible to continue to keep that house and maintain the mortgage payments on it or likely see an increase in the monthly mortgage payments because you have to refinance at a higher interest rate? We see all the time, Robbie and I have talked about this, the selling of the house can sometimes be a watershed moment in the divorce it allows a actual physical moving on. This, there's nothing legal to this. This is just us talking. But the, the the selling of the house and getting your own place allows you to be a new you. And it's not terrible to think about moving to a new house. That, that We're just talking. We're not saying that that's going to happen. But it, it, to that end, just from a, from a cost perspective and from a uh, emotional perspective, it might be really worth pivoting and thinking about selling the house. But what do you think, Rob? I completely agree. Uh, and it took you and I, it sounds silly, it took you and I <laughs> some years of practice to get to that point where we tell people, you don't think you can afford the house? Great, let's sell it. We don't even really think about it unless there's something special or unique about the house. There's really no reason for you to hold on to that because there's nothing worse than seeing someone turn themselves or attempt to turn themselves into a financial pretzel to hold on to an asset that they can't afford. We don't know more about this listener or her situation, but... If dad is earning two thirty dollars a year and her income actually is $50,000, that's household income on paper of $280,000. And I don't want to assume you and your ex have been financially irresponsible, but we do know the BC housing market is one of the highest in the country. And with a household income of $280,000, you could have a phenomenal home. You could have a home that's in excess of $1.5 million. We don't know what the equity is in your home. We know none of those things. But as you say, you can't afford to buy the house. And I imagine refinancing any sort of mortgage on a stated income of $50,000 would be very challenging. I can understand the emotional reasons for maybe why you want to do that, for stability for your children, memories in that home, or you really do like the home. I'm sure it's a very nice house. But as we say to so many folks, it's often a divorce is the first time people dig into their own finances and say, what can I do? How can I move on here for me? Now is a great opportunity to let go of that issue. Because I will say, we, we haven't suggested any numbers, with an income of 230 for him and for her at 50000 she's going to have significant spousal support, potentially anywhere up to four or even $5,000 a month, plus possibly child support, which will allow her to find some decent place to rent in the interim, if not buy. And as you say, Darren, this is a prime opportunity to move forward and move on uh, and not add more issues here into the divorce soup and focus on the core pieces, particularly what we talked about right off the top. How are we dealing with that $100,000 issue with the in-laws. So I wish this listener well, and uh, 
I hope she can narrow the issues that are at issue here so that her and her family can move forward. Um, yeah, we, that's, that's what we want everyone to do here is think about how are we moving forward? Not what am I doing tomorrow in my litigation? How is my litigation becoming my identity? Uh, I'm, I must think about my litigation every day. What, what are we doing right now on my litigation? That is not what you should be thinking. You should be thinking by December 31st, 2023, where am I living? What does my life look like? What does my income look like? What are my debts? Am I happy? Where are the kids? Is everyone safe? Am I divorced and done? And we hope the answer to that is yes, or you're moving very close to that. Well, Darren Schmidt, thank you so much for being with me. I'm Rob Woodward. Thank you for all the questions we've received and continue to receive. This has been Divorced and Done, and we look forward to being with you again. Divorce obviously sucks, but at least it only costs 20 bucks. 2020, 20, $20 divorce. Let's get a 2020, 20, $20 divorce. We can save money and split our stuff. We'll both pitch in. 10 bucks. I saw this ad on the side of a truck and it, it seems totally legit, right? Like, uh, we, we can trust a truck ad for legal advice, it's, right? It's, it's, like, it's no red flags here. Let's get a 2020, 20, $20 divorce. Let's get a 2020, 20, $20, 20 divorce. Let's get a 2020, 20, $20, $20 divorce. Let's get a 2020, 20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20, $20